Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the work that you've done in Christ. And we thank you, not for leaving us on our own to find Christ, your Son, but for leading us to the cross that we might behold your love displayed there for us, for your people. Father, we know that the strength to follow your commands could never come from us. So we thank you for your spirit dwelling in us, that the law might be worked out through us, through your people, through your church, to the praise of your glorious grace. Help us to see and understand now from your word. We pray that you would work in our hearts to grow our repentance and our faith. We pray that you would make us a spiritual people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Today, we're told that humans can do just about anything that they set their mind to, from saving the environment, to creating the metaverse, to living forever in the cloud, or even becoming a different gender. We think we're capable of anything that we set our minds to. If you don't like your life, if you don't like what's going on around you, we're trying to make it so that you can escape into a virtual reality. You can put your goggles on, pick up your little wand controllers and escape into an increasingly realistic world where you can do anything you want. If you don't like what's going on in your brain, we're offered all sorts of medications to change how we think and what we feel and how we behave. Some medications save people's lives, no doubt. I'm not saying that the chemistry in our brains is something to be ignored, but one result of having so many medications is that we think that if we find the right prescription and take the right combination of pills, our lives will match up with how we want it to be, with how we want to feel and think. The greatest expression of this is gender confusion. We're told today that you can express outwardly however you feel inside. You get to define reality for yourself, and you get to express that however you'd like. And because everyone around you is expected to affirm that, it fools us into thinking we have great power to change ourselves and our realities. But this is all a facade. You can change a lot about yourself. That's true. You can get a haircut, change your appearance. You can change your morals, your behavior. You can dye your hair. You can quit smoking and cursing. You can fast from social media but you can't change who you are at the most basic level. Most basically, most fundamentally, you're a creature. You exist in a creator-creature relation with God, and that's something you absolutely cannot change. So it's something absolutely definitional, definitional to who you are. You can't stop being a creature. We saw last week in John 3, 1 through 3, that the creator-creature relationship is a flawed one. We're sinners. We're rebels. 
We're actually in a bad relationship with God from birth. We're dead in our sins. And just like dead people are, anything, are unable to do anything about their deadness, in our own and in our own power, we're unable to do anything about our sinful standing before God. So last week, we saw that we have a great need, a need that's impossible for us to meet on our own. We need more than just moral reform. We need more than a change. We need to be born again, reborn, made new creations. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3.3. 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, if we remember, is a leader among the Jews. He's a Pharisee. He's a strict observer and even a scholar, probably, of the Old Testament. He starts the conversation, Nicodemus does, by telling Jesus that he knows he must be from God because of all the signs, all the works that he's doing. But Jesus shifts the weight immediately of the conversation back onto Nicodemus by telling him it's impossible for him or anyone to see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. He's implying that this great moral man, this learned man, has a great need. He needs to be born again. Well, a theological term we could use for that, for being born again, is regeneration. Regeneration. Regeneration is supernatural rebirth into spiritual life by which God begins salvation. Regeneration is supernatural rebirth into spiritual life by which God begins salvation. Supernatural rebirth. Is something so radical possible? Well, new birth, Jesus says, is not only possible, it's necessary. Something so necessary and so radical isn't possible in our own flesh, though, in our own strength. Without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we would be without hope. Without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we would be without hope hope. But God does through the Spirit what the flesh cannot. By the Holy Spirit, God gives understanding, He grants conversion, and He makes spiritual people. We often hear and think we're without hope without Christ, and that's right. We are without hope without Christ, but we're just as hopeless apart from the Holy Spirit. We're hopeless without the second person of the Trinity. We're just as hopeless without the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. We're naturally without understanding, but the Spirit gives understanding. We're naturally hard-hearted, and our wills are bent away from God and towards evil. But the Spirit gives new hearts and grants conversion. And we're naturally fleshly, and we need to be made spiritual to enter the kingdom of God of heaven, and the Spirit makes spiritual people. Without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we would be without hope. But God does through the Spirit what the flesh cannot. By the Spirit, God gives understanding, He grants conversion, and He makes spiritual people. We'll take each of those points with each of our three verses in turn this morning in verses 4 and 5 and 6. We'll start in verse 4 and see how Nicodemus is in need of greater understanding. And we'll see in Scripture 
how by the Holy Spirit, God grants understanding. He gives us understanding. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus obviously isn't understanding what Jesus is saying. He doesn't seem to think what Jesus says in verse 3 is possible. He has a very fleshly response in two senses. Well, first, his comment is literally fleshly. His mind's thinking of flesh and bone birth, natural birth. When the Bible talks about the flesh, sometimes this is what it means. But the Bible can also use the term flesh as a phrase to capture that which is opposite of God. So in this case, the term would capture his lack of comprehension of heavenly spiritual truths. Nicodemus can't rise above what he sees with his own two eyes. Those who are fleshly have their minds set on earthly things. But we know that there are more important things than earthly things and what we can see with our eyes. You can't see love, for instance. You cannot see love. But Christian or not, most people would agree that love is more important than material things. The Bible even talks about heavenly truths being more true than physical things. Now, a quick caveat, physical things aren't bad. God made the world and said that it was very good. God made physical flesh, creating Adam and Eve. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, even took on flesh and currently lives and rules like he will for all eternity as a physical body, as a man. So don't think that the physical, the material, is inherently bad. It's only bad when it rebels against its maker. So now when Nicodemus responds with this fleshly image, he may be genuinely confused, or he might be scoffing at Jesus, kind of mocking him and painting this absolutely absurd picture. He's kind of saying, you want me to do something you and I both know is physically impossible to do? I wonder if you know anyone who responds to Christian truth the way Nicodemus responds here. If you tell them they need to repent, they say, give up lying. You want me to cut my own arm off too? They'll use an extreme image to make your reasonable statement seem ridiculous. Or maybe you'll tell someone that they're made in the image of God, that what they do and who they are has value. And they'll respond as if you're out of your mind, saying, I don't believe in that fairy tale. All there is in the world is matter and motion. Now, these same people will say that there's such a thing as true and false and right and wrong. These are immaterial things. And they won't see the obvious contradiction in their thinking. They'll say on one hand that all there is is matter. On the other hand, they'll affirm immaterial truths. Like Nicodemus, people who scoff at biblical truth, people who live inconsistent lives, are proving themselves to be fleshly. They think like fleshly people. They're blind to spiritual truths. They have darkened understandings. And that's the state of every natural human. Like we said last week, every natural human 
is born blind, blind spiritually. And this has effects on people's minds. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Paul isn't saying that natural people are stupid people. They're not unable to think and use their brains. God's given us all minds and the ability to think and to reason. Natural people can put two and two together. They can even affirm true things about religion. But to truly know and understand spiritual things, the Bible tells us we need God's Spirit. Nicodemus, no doubt, is a smart man. God made some people smarter than others. God's made some people smarter in certain ways than others. My brother has a near photographic memory. But if you'd ask him to navigate somewhere, you'd wonder how he made it from his bedroom to the front door in the morning. (laughs) Some people have been blessed with the best schooling money can buy. Others have dropped out of high school. But no amount of intelligence fits someone for heaven. No amount of intelligence fits someone for heaven. Until God grants spiritual understanding, spiritual things will be foolish to you. But praise God that He does grant understanding, not to the intellectual elites, but often to the lowly. So don't think that your intellectual ability keeps you from God's grace. Is God so weak that He would just love to have fellowship with you? You're just a few IQ points away. If it were up to us to comprehend the infinite God in our own ability, we'd all be lost. So if there are days that you just don't get it, if there are times when God's Word seems absolutely puzzling, if there are moments where you wonder if you'll ever be able to understand the simplest thing about the Christian faith, brother, sister, you're in good company. It's in moments like these when we call out to God for help. It's in moments like these when instead of despairing in our own stupidity, we acknowledge our humility. It's in moments like these when we don't toss the Bible to the side, but we keep going back to it in faith. Where else are we going to go to grow? We have to go to the Word. We have to go to Scripture. We have to be people of the book. The Spirit of God grants understanding of spiritual things through the Bible, which He Himself inspired. The Spirit will never work against the Bible, and He rarely works apart from it. God's Spirit gives understanding through the Word. God's Word is powerful, and it's the main tool He uses to bring about the new birth. In the beginning, God spoke the world into existence. In the prophets, He said that His Word is like fire, like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. He says that it will go out from His mouth and not return to Him void, but accomplish what He purposes. In the New Testament, He says that the Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of both soul and spirit, joint and marrow, 
and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it's specifically the preached word that causes hearers to be pierced to the heart in Acts. That's why Paul commands Timothy to dedicate himself to preaching the word. Praise God that you are at a word-centered church this morning where the preaching of the word is central to our gathering each week. What else should we gather around? Where else should our focus be? Where else should it be but the reading, praying, singing, and preaching of God's Word? But friends, sitting and hearing the Word sadly is not enough. If it were, everyone who's sat in a church building or who's opened a Bible at some point would be saved, would be transformed. But we know that's not the case. We have too many friends and family who've walked into this very building, or one like it, and walked out unchanged. There may be even some of you here this morning, listening week in and week out, thinking that that is sufficient for your salvation. But it's not. The Spirit must couple the hearing of the Word with supernatural understanding. The Spirit must couple the hearing of the Word with supernatural understanding. Just like a book does you no good in a pitch black room, we need God's supernatural, spiritual light to understand the Word. The Word alone cannot save. The Word alone cannot save. The Spirit, the Spirit of Christ must work through the Word. Paul, talking about unbelieving Jews, like Nicodemus at this point in his life, Paul says about them, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. There was a veil over their minds that allowed them to see the words, but not to comprehend the full weight of what they were reading. The Jews may have understood God's oneness, monotheism, but did they understand His mercy? Did they love His grace? Likewise, we can sit here today and love God's love, but do we understand and cherish His righteousness and His goodness in all that He does? A supernatural spiritual understanding will lead to a love of all of who God is and all of what God does. The veil that lies over our sin-stained understandings must be lifted for us to know God. That's why when Paul writes Scripture to churches, he doesn't just pray that they would read it. He prays that they understand that God would accompany His Word with His Spirit and enlighten the minds of those He calls to faith. So we must, with Paul, pray that God would grant understanding. Prepare your minds and hearts to read God's Word by praying. It's not only a sign of humble dependence on God for all spiritual understanding, it's also a prayer that God sanctions and delights to answer. So diligently pursue God in the Word and in prayer. Especially use this time when we gather on Sunday mornings to focus your attention. Don't be distracted. 
If you're drifting off, listen now. Use these 90 minutes a week, just 90 minutes a week, to set your mind on things above without distraction, without thinking about practical cares, without thinking about where you're going to go for lunch. Maybe even wake yourself up early on Sunday mornings to prepare to get here so you're not rushing around last minute, sitting here frazzled. Maybe read the sermon text the day before, alone or with your family. Do whatever is necessary to set this time apart. God's given us one day in seven to gather together and worship Him by meditating on these things. I pray that that spills over into the rest of your lives, but it starts here together. God hasn't left man alone on the earth to figure him out. He hasn't set the world in motion, then withdrawn. We're not deists. He's done what the flesh cannot by revealing him, himself to the world through the word and granting spiritual understanding. But God not only gives understanding, by the Spirit, he also grants conversion. He grants repentance and faith. Jesus doesn't tell Nicodemus, you must read and understand. He says you must be born again. Reading and understanding is not being born again. Jesus clarifies what it means to be born again in verse 5. Look down at verse 5 with me. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Keep looking down. Look how similar that statement is to what Jesus says in verse 3. Look at verse 3 compared to verse 5. They're nearly identical. Jesus answered him in verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus makes a statement in verse 3, and it's shocking and hard to understand. So maybe we should cut Nicodemus a little bit of slack here, given the benefit of the doubt. It's a really tough statement. But then Jesus clarifies what he means. The sentences are nearly identical, but look down. He replaces again in verse 3 with of water and spirit in verse 5. It'd be like when Paige and I moved here, and you told us, oh, you can go pick that up at HEB. We would have had no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so to clarify, you would have to say the same sentence again, but replace what we didn't understand with something to help clarify it. Oh, you can pick that up at the grocery store. So in that example, H-E-B is clarified by grocery store. So looking at verses 3 and 5, we see again is clarified by of water and spirit. So Nicodemus didn't understand the first statement. He ought to understand this second statement. This is a reference he should have picked up on. A few verses later, Jesus actually scolds him for not picking up and understanding what he's talking about. Now, there are a few ways people have understood this phrase of water and the Spirit over the last 2,000 years of church history. 
Some people say that Jesus, when he says water, means physical birth. And when he says spirit, he's talking about second, spiritual birth. And that makes sense if we look back at verse 3 and see that the word again can mean again or from above. This interpretation of water and spirit seems to match that. You have to be born of water, maybe thinking of amniotic fluid in the womb, and then you have to be born again from the spirit. Now, I think that's true, but I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. No one ever in the ancient world really used that phrase, born of water, to talk about natural birth. Neither do I think Jesus is talking about baptism in water and baptism in the Spirit. John the Baptist has been baptizing, but Jesus hasn't yet instituted that as an ordinance for his church. So I don't think it makes a ton of sense to equate water here directly with baptism. We may say that baptism is an appropriate uh, image and symbol of what Jesus is talking about here, but I think that there's a third interpretation that makes more sense. You can disagree with me. We can still be brothers and sisters in this church. But I believe it makes the most sense that Jesus is referencing Ezekiel 36 with this phrase. Grammatically, he's not talking about two separate things. Stick with me here for a quick second of grammatical explanation. Grammatically, he's not talking about two separate things. So I think the ESV is right to put only one preposition before two words, water and spirit. It's right to read of water and spirit rather than saying of water and of the spirit. Talking about two separate things or times or events. The Greek has one preposition for two words indicating that it can be taken as one united phrase. So what should this phrase bring to mind for the Old Testament scholar Nicodemus? Where in the Bible are water and spirit connected? Jesus is pointing him to Ezekiel 36. Turn there with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, and we'll start in verse 22. Turn there to Ezekiel 36. I'm not sure what page that's on in the Pew Bibles. Someone could shout it out if you find it there, but no need. 723 in the Pew Bibles. Talking to a exiled Israel, the Lord says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. God, let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Sprinkled with water, cleansed, the promise of new hearts and the indwelling of the Spirit. God is promising to write what is at the very core of what's wrong with us. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit. This must happen to you. God has shown all mankind unbelievable kindness in creating us, blessing us with life, giving us dignity, showing us his care, providing for us in so many ways. But like Israel, we've rebelled. We've turned away from God and gladly defiled ourselves. We who bear his image have covered that image in blood and filth. As Israel rejected God, who showed them so much kindness, so have we all. But here, God is making new covenant promises. He promises to set right what we have made wrong. What has God done in the new covenant? He sent His Son, Christ, to take on flesh, to stand in the place of His people, to live the perfect life that none of us have lived, then suffered the wrath that we deserved. Then God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. This is what God has done. God has shown His great justice and His infinite mercy in Christ on the cross. That's what God's done outside of us. But none of God's great work helps us in any way until we're spiritually united to Christ. Unless a great work is done within us to apply what's happened without us. It's by the Spirit who unites us to Christ that we're sprinkled clean from all our sins. It's by His Spirit that we're forgiven. It's by His Spirit that we're raised to life and fundamentally changed. Our dead hearts are removed and replaced with soft, loving, faithful hearts. Hearts that love and obey. Hearts that not only hear and understand the Word, that hear the call to the Gospel, but respond in repentance and faith. It's God who promises to take initiative, to act for the sake of His own name and His own glory. It's God who bears spiritual children. It's God who adopts and breathes life into dead, hard-hearted sinners to give us the Spirit that grants us the ability, the desire to repent, to turn from our sins, to have faith in Christ and be justified, to live lives that obey and even love His commandments. Hearing, even understanding, is not enough. Those in whom the Holy Spirit is working, not only can they recite catechisms or comprehend theological facts 
or know truths about the Bible. They love them. They see them as beautiful. They trust in them, knowing that their only hope, their salvation, flows from an infinitely wise God who's revealed himself to us in Christ by his Spirit. In John 3, Jesus is connecting regeneration with cleansing and renewal. He's connecting new birth with new life. Paul elsewhere describes salvation as the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Those who have been cleansed from their sins, who have been raised to life, repent and believe. They turn from their sin, from the filth that once made them dirty, and they trust in Christ alone for their righteousness. Do you wonder if you've experienced the washing, renewing work of the Holy Spirit? Those are the signs. It's not tongues. It's not miracles. It's not ecstatic experiences of emotion. It's genuine, imperfect, but genuine repentance and faith that mark the Spirit's work. And that's work that the flesh cannot do. God, by His Spirit, grants understanding. He grants conversion, turning to Christ in repentance and faith. And thus, He makes spiritual people. He makes spiritual people. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The flesh can only produce flesh, just like rabbits can only produce rabbits and turtles can only produce turtles. Natural humans can only produce natural humans. And natural humans aren't able to enter the kingdom, seeing, knowing, and communing with their holy king. You must be spiritual to enter God's spiritual kingdom. And only the spirit can beget bear or give birth to spiritual people. To steal an illustration from Charles Spurgeon with a bit of an American twist, the requirement of new spiritual birth for entrance into the kingdom is like the requirement that presidents must be natural-born citizens of America. An Englishman born in London may emigrate to America. He may live here for 30 years, but if he runs for president, we'd say you're ineligible. You cannot. But I lost my accent, he says. You cannot, we'd say. But I dress like an American. I've memorized the Constitution. I've studied American politics my whole life. You cannot, we'd say. So it is with the kingdom of God. You must be born of the Spirit. There's no other way but I've grown up in the church. I attend every week. I've cleaned up my morals. I know theology. But have you been born again? Only the Spirit can beget, can bear spiritual people. By spiritual, I don't mean those who over-spiritualize everything, 
I don't mean people who are really in touch with some new age mysticism or have reached some level of hidden insight. By spiritual people, I simply mean Christians, those born of the Spirit, who live by the Spirit, who have repented and trusted in Christ. Repentance and faith are the twin graces flowing out of the Spirit's work of regeneration, and they're the main marks of the Spirit's work in our lives. Repentance and faith. Now, only spiritual people can enter the kingdom because it's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom, we could say, over which Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of believers. It's a kingdom that transcends space and time. It's a kingdom where sin and death have been overcome, and so sinful flesh can have no part in it. I hesitate even to say this, but even if God relaxed His infinite standards, perfection in following the law, which only Christ has ever done, even if He relaxed His standards and let the unrepentant sinner into the kingdom, the unrepentant sinner would have no home there. He would hate the place. He would hate God's presence. He would hate God's people. The person who hasn't been born of the Spirit, granted spiritual understanding, given new hearts that love the Lord, would want no part in this kingdom. He already wants no part with the king. So it's a, tra- it's a kingdom that transcends space and time. But it's a kingdom that has outposts here and now. The outposts are local churches, groups of spiritual people who are being prepared for heaven by the Spirit's regenerating and ongoing sanctifying work. This kingdom community, the local church, like this local church here at Millwood, is for spiritual people, not fleshly people. And that means that the local church is for twice-born, not once-born people. That means one implication of this is that we don't bring children into church membership automatically. We don't baptize our babies. As cute as they are, and they're pretty cute. My wife just had an ultrasound, and we saw our baby's face for the first time. And it's adorable. We already love our baby. (laughs) But as much as we love our children, we must also love them enough to not tell them that they're Christians, that they're part of the kingdom, until they've been born again. We must love them enough to wait for professions of faith and evidence of faith before assuring them that they're saved. That also goes for adults, for visitors, for anyone who comes into our church gathering on Sunday mornings. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, we love that you're here. We'd love for you to keep coming. We'd love to talk more about what it means to be a Christian. But if you're here and you're not a believer, we love you enough to not pretend like you are one. We don't want to give you false assurance by making you members if you haven't been born again. The local church is for spiritual people, not fleshly people. And that means the local church will look more like the kingdom of heaven than the kingdom of this world. The Spirit of Christ will make us look more like Christ. The Holy Spirit will make holy offspring. It's His name. It's what He does. 
It's part of his job. But if fleshly people are brought into the church, they will pr- produce fleshly fruit. And that fruit tends to rot and to spread like cancer and to tear the church down. We must be concerned with the purity of the church. By purity, I don't mean perfection. I don't mean a facade of sinlessness. I mean that the membership here all understands the gospel, professes the gospel, and repents of their sin. Concern for the purity of the church looks like carefully but charitably bringing in and seeing out members. Lord willing, we'll do that in a few hours at our members meeting this evening. And it does look like practicing church discipline. But what that church discipline looks like is that a majority of the time looks like encouragement. It looks like building up, not tearing down. It looks like love and patience and teaching, not inspecting, as someone at Life Group this week said, we're not fruit inspectors. Not inspecting, not doubting, not trying to catch people. If blatant unrepentant sin goes on unchecked, it will harm the body. But the body doesn't grow through constant cutting away. It grows into the maturity of Christ and into spiritual maturity by being built up, by encouraging one another day after day, by feasting on the Word, by laboring in prayer for one another, and trusting that God by His Spirit will work in us to sprinkle us clean, to give us life, and work in us for the sake of His name, for His glory. Often he'll do that in very practical ways. What does that look like? I read from Galatians 6, jumping back a few verses. We'll close by reading Galatians 5, 25 and following. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. May God's Spirit work in our lives in this way, through the ministry of one another. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for the communion that we have with you. That we, undeserving sinners, can draw near to a holy God by the cleansing blood of your Son and the renewal of your Holy Spirit. Grant us understanding, Lord, spiritual understanding. Grant us hearts that are soft, that love you and your law, that turn from sin and trust solely in Christ for our righteousness. Grant that we may be a church that is spiritual, that builds one another up, that loves what is good and pure and encourages one another in the same. 
Lord, we praise you and thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, for your love, and for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen.